and you're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentTreeChurch.com. Well, I'm humbled by that. Uh, humbled by that. Uh, I love you guys, and uh, but you know what I love more than you guys is the Word of God. Amen. Who brought their Bibles? Let me see those things. Hold them up. Oh, good job. Good job, man. That uh, I'm impressed. Well, Merry Christmas, or as the English say, Happy Christmas. Uh, I like that too. And the reason I like that, uh, however you say it, is I just like the Christmas season is so much, um, it's so much joy as we celebrate, as we remember the birth of our Savior and And that the God of the universe took on flesh and came to save us. I mean, this event of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, coming himself from heaven, taking on the flesh of mankind in order to save us from the sin that we're guilty of. I mean, I can't think of anything better to celebrate. Can you? Well, we've we've worshiped with singing. Thank you. Worship team for doing that. We've worshiped with prayer and scripture reading. And now let's worship through a time of preaching. And if you're new to following Christ uh, and learning about the Bible, let me clue you in on something. The way you and and me too, I I can worship through preaching is this. I know it sounds funny. Worship through preaching is don't let the time just kind of go by you. But engage, grab a hold of this with your heart and mind. Think through it. Track with me in your thinking. Ask questions of the text as you're going through. Make sure that what I'm saying is in line with what the Bible says because it's the Bible that we measure truth by. Amen? Take notes. Take notes in your Bible. Write notes on your phone. Uh, get a little prayer journal. Write notes in that. Ask questions of what we're talking about. Let's think through how the text will engage us and be used uh, by the Holy Spirit to change us, to give us a new mind, a new heart, to make us, to shape us into the image of God. Like Brother Mark said, this is what we do as we go verse by verse because it's the supernatural thing that changes us. The Bible studied, taught, thought over, wrestled with is one of the key ways, and I should say key supernatural ways that God uses to place that new heart and mind in us. So well, before we dive in, I, I was, I'd already got to preaching there. I got a couple of things to say here. Just remind you is next Sunday night is a very special, not the Sunday night, but Sunday is a very special Sunday because it's Christmas Eve. Not to confuse you, just because it's Christmas Eve, that doesn't mean that we will have evening services. No, we're going to have Sunday morning services because it's Sunday. It's the Lord's day and Christmas Eve service times next week will be different. So pay attention. 9 a.m. You guys, you'll be fine, but come 9 a.m. 1030 a.m. So the 11 o'clock's bumped up and then there's a noon service. And now if you want to avoid the crowd, I'm just thinking, I'm just suggesting maybe noon. Uh, that would help us out if some of you could come at noon. But to tell you the truth, I have no idea where y'all are going to fill up with service. So remember, invite people to come. Invite people to come, especially unchurched people. That those you suspect might not be Christ followers. Invite them. Because this time of year, especially Christmas, people will come. Statistics overwhelmingly say if you invite someone to church, they'll come, especially at Christmas time, uh, because it's a, it's a wonderful time for them to come. They want to experience something Christmassy, and we're going to share the gospel with them. Amen? Well, let's dive into our time of preaching. If you're just joining us, we're looking at four, count them, four super old Christmas songs, and I and when I say old, baby, I'm talking 2,800 years old. Now, if you're not very good at math, you're like going 2,800 years. Well, that's great. I love old Christmas songs. But if you're good at math and maybe good at history, you're like going, wait a second, 
Jesus' birth in Bethlehem was only 2,000 years ago. How could they be older than the actual event? Uh, and, and I'm glad you asked that. The answer is that these songs foretell the very first Christmas by 750 years. They are songs given by God through the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. Isaiah wrote down what God gave him to write down. However, the songs are very much straight from God. And what makes them Christmas songs is that these songs, these are prophecies about this mysterious servant that God is sending to save the earth from heaven. That will come through the Jewish people and that will come at a future date when these songs are written. And get this, this mysterious servant prophesied here in these four servant songs will be a light to the nations and will draw people from all over the world to himself. And then he will deliver them from the slavery of sin and death. Now we've identified the mysterious servant as Jesus. Yeah, you're going, uh, Noah? No, 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 it's Jesus. That the servant has come that very first Christmas morning that the prophecies have come true. We'll study these four songs. We study these four songs because they do a number of things. Number one is they build our faith in remembering that God made the promise and he delivered on the promise. And quite literally, the Virgin Mary delivered that promise. The Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians 4, verse 4 and 5, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And God made that promise and kept the promise. Amen? So the second reason is that we study every bit of God's word, the Bible, because we want to know him more. Uh, We want to know him. So we go from Genesis to Revelation. We want to know him more just like any relationship where you love someone. We want to spend time with them. We want to know everything about them. We want to know God more. And the third reason is that God uses his word to grow us into spiritual maturity. And we need that, don't we? Um, Let me just say this before we dive in as well as we're setting this up. You can read through this part of the Bible, especially if you're doing a Bible in a year. Anybody doing a Bible in the year and coming close to the end? Oh, baby, I got to the end today. I'm a little bit ahead uh, I got to the end, Revelation 22, and man, I was just blessed, going, God, thank you. But when you get through this part, sometimes you're just cruising, you're going, I don't know what they're saying. At least I do. You know, like you're going, man, I'm just cruising through Isaiah, and you go, man, burning torches and uh, tongues, uh, I don't know what this is about. So, You can look at these songs on the surface and go, man, this is some deep water. But you're going to get this. This is some of the coolest stuff if you'll grab onto it. The second servant song in chapter 49 was God the Father and the Son speaking to us. You remember that? It's a duet. Chapter 42, the first one was just the, the Father speaking about the son or the servant coming. And now in this third servant song in our text today found in Isaiah 50 is the servant taking center stage and he is now addressing the father. Do you see how it goes? The father talking about the servant. It's kind of a duet. Now it's the servant talking about the father. Uh, There are a couple of things this song is going to focus on. Let me just give you one right up front. Here it is. The third servant song focuses on the servant as a rejected prophet. The third servant song focuses on the servant as a rejected prophet. That's what we're going to see. We're going to see another big thing in here, but that's something we want to start with. Now, if you're new to reading the Bible... When you use the word prophet, you can get confused. Make sure you're getting the right idea about this word prophet. A prophet's job given by God isn't necessarily to tell the future 
of events that may occur out there or will occur. It can be and often is, but it's not always. The prophet's main job, whatever it is, is to hear from God and tell the people God's message. Does that make sense? And so a rejected prophet is one who has communicated God's message to his people, but the people of God reject that prophet because of the message. And get this, therefore they are rejecting God. Make sense? So as the servant begins in verse 4, the servant says this about himself. Here we go. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning, he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. Now be on the watch for that phrase at the first, the Lord God. You see that in your own Bible? The Lord God throughout this song today. When you see that, it's really giving you a title that is the sovereign Lord. When you hear that word sovereign, it means that there's no one higher than the sovereign. He's the, the creator of all outside the universe. There's no force that controls him at all. So we know that to be God the Father, right? Who has revealed himself through the pages of the Bible. So the sovereign Lord who is the servant is addressing... The servant uses that phrase, check this out, four times. Sovereign Lord, this is so important here. The servant is claiming that the power of the Lord God has given to himself the servant for a mission. Let me see if I can put it like this. The power of the sovereign God takes the form of a servant. See if this makes sense. The power of the sovereign God takes the form, we're talking a physical form of a servant. Now we know it's talking about Jesus, right? Do you see what the servant is claiming here? He's claiming that he is the power of God coming to earth to live with men. That's a massive claim. So in verse four, when the servant says, the tongue of those who are taught, the servant then is claiming to be a scholar. Or we could say he is well educated in the word of God. He knows the word of God. I mean, he knows the word of God. He's an expert, the expert. I should say so because in John 1, do you remember Jesus' title? He will be called the word of God. Literally one of his titles. Now the servant is claiming to be a scholar of the word of God. Then check out the phrase, He awakens my ear. Stay with me. We're going to unpack it all. What the servant is saying is that the servant is not only a scholar of God's word, but also he is responsive to God's word. He lets God's desires, God's plans be his driving force of what motivates his life. Now you'll remember this when Jesus said in John 6, 38... Jesus says, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Amen. That's the mission of God, the servant. That's what he's referring to back in Isaiah 50. Is that cool or what? The servant is saying that the servant is not only a scholar of God's word, but that he is also responsive to God's word, God's plans for his life. That's unlike God's people who remain silent, didn't respond to God's word. This is who Isaiah is addressing at the time Isaiah is written. The people of God who were not listening to God. They're like, hmm. But the servant, Jesus, would listen, would carry out God's word. The servant says, I'll respond. I'll follow your commands, God. Now check out the second part of verse 4. 
the Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught. Now we saw that. Watch how it goes. That I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. I'm weary. Anybody else weary? Me, you, the world is weary because this is a hard place. It's difficult. Without Jesus, the world is weary. That's an understatement, right? Jesus is saying by following the plans, God the Father, the servant will sustain him, the weary, with a word. Okay? Or to put it another way, Jesus says, I'll bring life to you through my word and not just my... uh, And not just any life, real life in me. That's what he's saying. The life that life was designed to be without the weight of sin. He's talking about heaven. He's talking about redemption, being born again. The servant says, I'm coming and I'll speak life to the weary. That'd be you. That'd be me. Those who believe in Christ Jesus. Then the servant sings in the last line of verse 4. Check this out. Morning by morning, he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. Remember, the servant is singing about the Father. Jesus is giving us this mental picture of the Father awakening, the servant in the morning to instruct him personally as the Son, as a disciple. Now, that is what a loving Father does. Is they get their children up in the morning. When my children were little, I would go into their room. They'd be sleeping there. And uh, I would walk into their room singing a song. Gently, gently. And I would sing this. Good morning, Lord. I rise to greet you. To read your word. And praise your name. I know that I. Your spirit leads me. My life will never be the same. Now, the song goes on and on. I won't sing it all for you. But they slowly woke up to those words. Now, you decide if I was being cruel or not. I think they they thought I was cruel at that time. But this is the picture that Jesus is painting of the Father coming into the son's room, getting them up ready to instruct the son in the word. Now, does God sleep? Does Jesus sleep? No, 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 no. But it's just this picture. Now, before we move on to verse five, I want us to tie this verse four together with it before we move on to that next section of the song. So what we're seeing here in verse four is that the servant is speaking in first person. Do you see that? When it says, uh, when it says tongue of disciples, it's as if he's saying that God the Father is instructing the servant to be a spokesman for those who are weary and need comfort. That need to hear the words of life that only the servant will be able to bring. Or we could say it like this, that God the Father has given the servant a special attentiveness that allows the servant to listen to God as a disciple and then communicate that exact word to the people of God. So we read in verse 5, the Lord God has opened my ears and I was rebellious. There it is again, the Lord God, that phrase, the sovereign God. Now, what has the sovereign God done for this servant? He has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, the servant says. A couple of things. First, when it says he opened my ear, what do we think that might mean? It's a way of saying that the servant is listening to God the Father. He's not just hearing. It's not just sound. He's listening. He's absorbing the message. He is giving him, God is giving Jesus or the servant understanding of the role the Father wants the servant to play when he comes as a human. Now, then the servant is telling us that he is submissive to that word the Father's giving him. Not, not only does 
the servant hear the word from God, the message, but that he is then, he's willing to carry that out. Here's what we need to understand. Write this down. The life of the servant, the life the servant will live, will focus attention on his submissive obedience. The life the servant will live, remember this is written in advance, will focus attention on his submissive obedience. The life the servant will live will focus attention on his submissive obedience. Now like the first two servant songs we've studied, where some will say that these songs are about the nation of Israel. But that can't be the case because of what we've seen in the song so far. Would you agree? Here, here's the proof again once, uh, right here. Uh, when it says that he was not rebellious, the reason it cannot be Israel as the servant is that Israel as a people group, as a nation, the Bible over and over and over describes them being rebellious against God the Father. Does it not? But the servant is speaking here in first person. That's another clue. That this is not the people, but an individual speaking, isn't it? It says, I have not rebelled. But then I, we read in that last line of verse 5, look at this. I turn not backward. I turn not backward. You go, oh, okay. This is like when you're reading through the Bible and you read that and you go, Okay, I guess he doesn't turn backward. Another way we can identify this is not referring to Israel as the servant because they had turned back over and over and over from God. They go, see ya. Now, this phrase, I turn not backward, it's hard to understand if you try to take it by itself. But if we think about it in line with what we have been reading so far today, the life of the servant will focus attention on his submissive obedience, it begins to make sense. Now, this is going to be cool, so watch this. If then we add the fact that this song is written in a style of Hebrew poetry, it will even make more sense. Now, I've got to tell you that I geek out on stuff like this. I won't drag you far down the rabbit trail, but let's go hunting for rabbits. For, well, hunting for rabbits. Okay. A couple of things you need to know because you hear Hebrew poetry and you go, oh, here he goes. All right, you don't need to know much, but one thing is that Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme. We think of poetry like rhyming stuff, like roses are red kind of thing. This doesn't rhyme. It can, it just doesn't. In Hebrew poetry, certain words and orders of words are brought out in the structure of how they're laid out in the Hebrew. So it identifies key concepts and key words, and it brings out the meaning even more. It's like a sheet of music, if you will. Now, knowing that tiny bit about Hebrew poetry, check this out, the end of verse 5 and the start of verse 6. The servant says, I turned not backward, I gave my back to those who strike. Do you see the play on words here? I turn not backward. Instead, the servant says, I gave, he willingly did something, my back to those who strike. Hang on to Jesus, what he's saying here in this prophecy. It's the word back and backwards. That's Hebrew poetry pointing out this much deeper meaning. That the servant willingly does not take his face and gaze off of God's plans. Instead of defending himself against the evil, And he says, I offer my back to them, but I won't take my eyes off of God. Do you see that? Literally, that's, he's saying, those people that will strike me, I'm not gonna turn around and deal with them. Turn with me, if you would, to the end of John 18, for just a moment. You'll remember this scene. Jesus is on trial for his life. He's been arrested. And Jesus is on trial before Pilate, the Roman governor. And the Jewish religious leaders want Jesus to be crucified, put to death. But after Pilate talks with Jesus, examines him, 
He comes out to the crowd, these religious leaders. He says, I find no guilt in this man. Do you remember? Then listen to how John then, the apostle, describes what's next as Pilate begins to speak to the ones then calling for Jesus' crucifixion. We read in the end of 19 through early 20, uh, early night, end of 18 through early 19. This is Pilate speaking. But you have a custom that I should release no, uh, release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, no, this man. Not not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus, underline this, and flogged him. Scourged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King Jesus, and struck him with their hands. This, this is why we call this a Christmas song. The servant song is called also the suffering servant song. Earlier when we said that there are a couple of things, this song is going to focus on the servant as this rejected prophet. You remember that? This is the second focus. Write this down. The third servant song focuses on the servant as a suffering servant. You see how these two things go hand in hand? He's a rejected servant, but he's also a suffering servant. Now, many times, the third servant song is simply referred to as the suffering song or the suffering servant song. Because when it says in verse 5, the second half of verse 5, I turned not backward, I gave my back to those who strike. Jesus is very clearly saying Not only did I listen to the Father and obey his plans, I actually, by doing that, followed his plans by giving my back to those who would strike, those who would wound me. I willingly gave my back to those who would do me harm and would make me suffer. I gave my back, my most vulnerable side, to those who would crucify me. He won't defend himself. Now, please, please, please get this. There's so many times when we talk about the death of Jesus by crucifixion, and rightfully so. But many times what we fail to remember is the suffering that led up to that death. This is what we're seeing here in this third servant song, the suffering servant. Jesus' suffering that was due to my sin, your sin. Because as Jesus takes on our sin, he goes to the cross. He begins to suffer. He is talking about the suffering that you deserve, that I deserve. The sheer wrath of God, the suffering that we were due. Jesus says, I'll take your place. I'll suffer in your place. And remember... As the third servant song is 750 years before the event actually occurred, it's written as if it has already occurred. Why is that? Well, listen to the Apostle Peter as he speaks to the people of God, uh, Christians that he's writing to. At that time, Jesus is crucified and sacrificed for the sins of the elect. This is going to blow your mind. Peter says in 1 Peter 1.18, He says, knowing that you, he's referring to the elect, were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. The feudal ways that you inherited is original sin. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold. Silver or gold are perishable? Yeah. But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest manifest in the last times for the sake of you, 
who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Now, there's so much we could say here. We could preach a series right here. And baby, I ain't kidding. The point here is that Jesus, as the servant, in this servant song is saying, I willingly gave my back to suffering to follow God's plan for the salvation of my people. Because then we read the last line of verse 6. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Spitting. More suffering this servant will endure. You know that they spit in his face as they mocked him. You know they mocked him. They punched him. They pulled out big handfuls of his beard. And yet the servant doesn't rebel or open his mouth even. He willingly goes to a world that wants to kill him and he doesn't fight back against his oppressors. And although Jesus as the servant will face the suffering, he describes what God will do. Look at this, verse seven. You're gonna love this. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. There it, again, there it is again, the phrase, right? This sovereign God helps me. The one who is ultimately in control helps me. God the Father helps the servant. Helps him do what? To not be put to shame. So let me ask a question. Who is trying to put Jesus to shame? At this point when he's about to be killed. Well we know the Jewish religious leaders from our study of John. But we should also have to look at our spiritual enemy ultimately. Satan. Write this down. God the Father will vindicate the servant from the shame and disgrace of those who seek to accuse him. This is important you get this. God the Father will vindicate the servant from the shame and disgrace of those who seek to accuse him. Did you know what the meaning of the name Satan means? The accuser. Does that mess you up? It does me. Man, right here in servant song number three, we're getting right at the heart of the gospel, the fight between good and evil. And and, and let me just say, this is not a fair fight, is it? It's not like God's going, I don't know how we're going to take Satan out. God's going, let me show you how the son is going to take Satan now. You see the difference? And what does the servant say will be the result of the servant's trust? That God the father will vindicate the servant. Second half of verse seven says this. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint and I know that I shall not be put to shame. To set your face like flint is to be rigid Flint doesn't bend. It's sharp on one side. You point it. It doesn't bend. It means that Jesus will not turn away from the mission, the desires, the sovereign plan of God that the Father has given him. So Jesus is saying, since God is for me, I will live my life for him. Isn't that exactly what Jesus asks of us? He doesn't do something different than what he he does. He says, follow my example. To put away our own plans for our lives and say, Jesus, use my life however you think you want to use it. Use my time. Use my body. Use my money, my family, my home. Jesus demonstrates that for us in how he follows his father's plan. Then the servant says in verse 8, He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. The servant is saying, Oh yeah? Oh yeah? God stands with me. And I'm ready to stand my ground for him. So come on, baby. Bring it on. The servant is anticipating that that although Satan will accuse him, God will then vindicate him. In other words, although Satan will accuse and say, you're guilty, God will say, no, 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 you're not guilty. Now, 
What do we know about that? Because Jesus was condemned in a trial before Pilate. He was put to death, wasn't he? He was shamed, spit on, beaten. Well, let's look in verse 9. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. The answer to the question of how Jesus will be vindicated by the Father. Here it is. You ready? God the Father would vindicate the servant from his accusers by raising Jesus from the dead. Now, if this goes on, this little light goes on in your head, this is huge. God the Father would vindicate the servant, talking about Jesus, from his accusers by raising Jesus from the dead. The stone would be rolled away so that we as witnesses could look in. The stone wasn't rolled away so Jesus could get out. So we could see him and say he's not there. That although Jesus had been crucified, declared dead by Roman authorities, Placed in a tomb, dead, 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 dead. Jesus would be raised by God the Father back to life on the morning of the third day. Now we call this a Christmas song, right? But the song seems more to be speaking about the suffering and the death and the resurrection. Here's the thing we need to understand. The message of Christmas is inextricably linked To Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. You don't get cute little Jesus without the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. You just don't. The world likes to play like Jesus is still in the manger. Oh, sweet little baby Jesus. Oh, I love Jesus. They want a Jesus like that. They don't want him as a ruling judge. That the God of the universe, the servant, took on the flesh of mankind to carry out the mission The purpose of the Father. That right there is the joy of Christmas. And notice that last line of verse 9. I love this. Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. All all of Jesus' accusers that called for his death would be uh, worn out like a garment and then be eaten up like moths. Do you get the imagery? Or we could say it like this. One day, Jesus' accusers will face God's judgment and experience his wrath. One day, Jesus' accusers will face God's judgment and experience his wrath. You go, well, Paul, they're all dead. They're in hell now. Nobody's in hell right now. That comes at the end. Get to Revelation. You'll see that. Now, I wouldn't say they're having a good day in Hades. That's a different talk, but... Now, take a break with me for just a moment. When I say something like that, it is easy to say, well, that's right. The accusers will face God's wrath. It's easy for us to point fingers. But the question is, are we accusing Jesus of something? That's not true. Are we accusing him of something that's not true? Well, let me say this as gently But as honestly honestly as I can, since Jesus claims to be the Son of God, since Jesus claims to be the servant of God, if you as an individual say he is not God, or say I don't know if Jesus is the Son of God, well then, my friend, you are an accuser of Jesus. Because you're saying, hey, Jesus, I think you're, uh, what's the term? A liar. Harsh, I know. I know I'm being harsh. But the truth is, if you don't agree with Jesus, you are against Jesus. You are an enemy of God. And if that is you, listen to me right now. Change teams. Join team Jesus. Believe in Jesus, who he said he is. Okay. Last couple of verses here. Jesus is going to say, since this is my testimony, who is going to believe, who is going to follow me and obey my words? We read in verse 10. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? 
Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. As God is giving this message through the prophet Isaiah, he is initially writing to the people of Israel, right? He's calling his people to follow him. But that message is for us as well. I love the imagery here. To trust God in the darkness. Notice it doesn't say, hey, when you feel good about life, everything's going good. Um, you just put your trust in me and then, then it'll be hunky-dory. That's not what it says. It says, who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Or we could reword it. And say it this way, if you believe in God, if you understand that he is the one with the real power and you fear him, then even if you walk in darkness, I'm calling you to trust me as the servant and put your faith in me as God. Now, normally when we read the word darkness, in a spiritual sense, it means a blindness or an evil, doesn't it? That's Old Testament, but that's not the case here. Rather, it's referring to the difficulties and the hardships in life that believers will face as they follow the servant. Okay, let's say it like this. When you suffer in this life, when the light is gone and you're walking in suffering and darkness, you go, I don't know how I can go on. I love Jesus. Why is this all happening to me? I don't know if I can go on. Anybody been there? me for those who trust in God and commit to the servant he says he will sustain you now Jesus the servant is giving this as a positive thing isn't it but there's a reverse of it as well that's what we see in the final verse of verse 11 behold all of you who kindle a fire who equip yourselves with burning torches think of someone like Going in the dark with burning torch. Walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. This should send ice water down your veins if you properly understand it. You get what the servant is telling people who don't fear God? He's saying, you either follow the light that I have as being the servant of God, or you will follow your own light. There's no third way. And if you follow your own light, you shall lie down in torment. You get what Jesus is talking about, right? Now, why would you do that? Why would you follow your own light? What I find so interesting and scary at the very same time in this verse is that those who try to light their own way using human reasoning, man-made ideas about how life should go will actually end up being burned by the same false light that they put their faith in. And eventually in the end, that will lead to eternal death. Don't mistake, that doesn't mean that they'll cease, poof, to exist. But as the servant says, this you have from my hand. He will be the judge, in other words. He says, you that follow your own light will lie down in torment. Now, when he says this, the word that comes to mind is not Merry Christmas, is it? But it is a very merry, joyful, and happy Christmas for those who've put their faith in the servant. But the message of Christmas, make no mistake, is not merry for those that don't believe. It's terrifying, or at least it should be. In the four gospel accounts, of Jesus' life, Jesus makes it clear over and over, I'm the only way to a relationship with God. There's no other way. No other religion. 
You see, believers celebrate the birth of Jesus because he brought our salvation with him from heaven. And although most of those who don't believe still are willing to join in the Christmas celebrations, what they don't understand is that the birth of Jesus is also the birth of their eternal judge. That is, unless they are born again. Born from above, born by will of the Father, by the power of the Spirit, so that they can in turn turn their hearts to Jesus, repent, believe in him as the Son of God, who has come to bring salvation. Now here at the end, I'm going to sing an old song for us. Just one little line out of it, one verse out of it, from the 1600s. Now know that, knowing what we know now about Psalm 50 here, which is a much older Christmas song, I think you'll understand the meaning of this Christmas song that we'll sing that's 400 plus years old, much deeper. Sing this, sing it slowly with me, sing it thoughtfully. It goes like this. God rest ye merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy, comfort and joy. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. Let's pray. God, we are beginning to scratch the surface of the the depth and the meaning of you sending your son that first Christmas. That you have brought the ultimate gift to us. For those that believe in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God, may we explore and be mindful of the depth of the grace that you have given, that you have brought salvation when we could neither love you or trust you. That Jesus, you have called us from death into life. God, our prayer is that as we see the manger and the pictures of baby Jesus coming with the Virgin Mary, that we would think about the life, death and resurrection that has purchased our freedom. That you Jesus kept your face toward God the Father your daddy and gave your back to us to carry our sins as you just continue to pray my question is for those of you who don't trust Jesus as your Savior what has to happen for you is you have to get to the end of yourself trying your own reasoning out listening to the world listen to me what authority do you have for trusting your own thoughts What authority does the world have that you're trusting in? Let me ask you, have you been wrong before? Jesus says to you, come follow me. Come believe and you'll have life everlasting. That your sins will be forgiven, but not only that, that you will have his righteousness given to you so that when God looks at you,
for those that believe, he sees the righteousness of his own son. So what are you waiting on? Would you come to the end of yourself right now? Believe in Jesus. Simply pray a prayer like this. Put it in your own words. God, I believe that you sent your son Jesus to take my place. I believe that he is your son. And that his death on the cross is paid for my sins. Therefore, I repent of my unbelief. And I follow you. You can have all my decisions. As you pray those words, know this. Your own body, your own mind will rail against that. It will say... I don't need Jesus. This is not real. But let me describe to you. What we have been talking about is more real than your life. More real than anything you've seen. And you go, well, why haven't I seen it? And I would say, you just have. If I, as I have read these words to you, the Holy Spirit has taken those into your heart. And changed you. So end your prayer like this. Thank you for saving me. I don't know much God. But I know that you have saved me. And I want to follow you the rest of my days. I trust you Jesus. And it's in your name I pray. Amen. Would you stand with me as we sing one last song together. And then I'll come up and close our time together. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bentry Church. To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit BentryChurch.com.